This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our On Leadership series. And our own Alex Cortez brings us an interview with a giant in a field the public doesn't hear from very often, and that's private equity, the form of investing where you buy a portion and often the controlling portion of a company, hoping to make it stronger and then sell it to someone else, and helping the economy and helping generate a return for investors. Some of the investors in private equity funds are already wealthy, but many of them aren't. Many of them are pension funds and university endowments. And the success of the private equity firm directly impacts the retirement pensions of folks like firemen and teachers and how much a university can dedicate towards scholarships. This private equity giant whose story we're bringing you today is John Canning, and he's the founder of Madison Dearborn Partners, which has invested over $20 billion into the economy and has achieved 20% rates of return for these investors in allowing John to embrace another title, philanthropist. Let's take a listen to Alex's interview with John. John, where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island, Bayport, Long Island. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a small town, right yeah. halfway out on the island. You know, 77 kids in my graduating class. Oh, my, wow. My father was the only doctor in town. It was a mid- middle-class community. Sometimes he'd get paid uh, in clams or uh, <laughs> corn uh, or fish. Sometimes he didn't get paid. You know, he did, used to do uh, house calls, yeah. and then nobody does house calls anymore. So it was a, it was, uh, it was a real middle class. It wasn't poor, but it was real real middle class. Yeah, man, being a town doctor or a town lawyer would be fascinating. It, it's all the various kind of cases you'd have yeah, to handle. Yeah, I think he saw a lot of stuff I didn't hear about. Yeah. What would you say, did the community in particular shape you in any way? I want to ask you about your father after that, but how did the community and that environment shape you? You know, some of the people I went to school with are still my best friends. Uh, I, see, I see a couple of them every year, at least once or twice. Uh, so, it was, you know, I have just terrific memories of, of, of my, you know, growing up in, in, in uh, on Long Island, yeah. Bayport. And what kind of jobs do those friends that you see every year have now? One guy runs a grocery store. Uh, another guy, ironically, runs a deli. Um, one, one of them uh, retired at uh, um, uh, one of the big phone companies uh, about 15 years ago you know I'm 72 yeah. so uh, one of them's a teacher was a teacher he, he retired also I think that's a big testament to your character and who you are I mean can you talk about it I mean, most people when they hear of private equity guys they probably don't think he's you know he's hanging out with his childhood best friends he's you know dining at the most elite restaurants in Chicago and no, just talk, I, talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, you know, uh, I'll talk about the one fellow who I, I used to work at the grocery store he now runs because his dad owned it. It was out on Fire Island, which is, you know, runs the length yeah. of Long Island. Um, so he was the uh, uh, best man in my first wedding. Uh, he and I get together at least four times a year. Uh, so his father then died and he, he inherited the store. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't even think he owns a suit. Uh, but but we 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 we'll, if we see each other in in six months, we can sit down and talk for hours as if we'd been together the the entire full six months. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we just have just such a connect. Yeah. Do you find it very cathartic to kind of get out of the office I love and it. spend yeah. time? I love it. He comes in. I have a condo here, and we sit out on the balcony, have cigars, and uh, go out. We'll go out to lunch together. 
and then we'll head to a ball game or do something for a series of days. I don't have to wear a suit. <laughs> you know, I can just wear jeans and a, and a, a sweatshirt that has uh, you know go socks on it or whatever. So, oh, um, so tell me about your dad. You know, I, I think the the thing that I, I remember most most is is his work ethic, and I, I remember saying, "I'm never going to be a doctor. This is too tough," because uh, he 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 was. Um, you know, he not only did he have op- office hours, but he would he would he'd be take off at two in the morning if somebody called. You know, he let he had them. I mean, you know, he, he, everybody had his phone number. He he didn't like have a hidden phone number so he couldn't be bothered. And I think his work ethic was really, you know, it, there's only one way you learn, and that's by observing somebody do what. You know, people can preach to you, but the people, you know, when you have a mentor. It's really what the mentor does, not what the mentor says. And that, that's the way my father was. John, tell me about your first job. We asked everyone we interview about their very first job as a kid and what they learned from it. Was there a funny experience? Well, um, yeah, my first job was as a counselor at a Jewish day camp. And Were you Jewish? No. And they, had, they, had, they, had a, they were looking for somebody who could teach horseback riding. So I said, I'm your man. It was 300 bucks for the summer. I had never been on a horse. I didn't know anything about horses. I had to figure out how to saddle a horse. And the first time I did it, the kid almost fell off because the saddle wasn't tight enough. So luckily, the kind of horse riding was, you know, you go in a circle, and I led the horse around. But I had no clue uh, uh, about a ho- anything you do with horses. And so I, but I pulled it off. And it was three hundred bucks for the you whole. You said summer. I'm your man, and you didn't know anything about horses. Uh, not a thing, <laughs> not a thing. Hadn't even I probably hadn't even been on a horse or touched one. They didn't ask you. Do you know anything about horses? They, <laughs> they just needed a guy, and you were the guy who was just, there. They, <laughs> I, they must have needed him fairly badly. Yeah. And they, I think they didn't think it was a it was a high skill level needed since the kids weren't exactly doing show show horse riding or jumping, you know, hurdles. They were. It was just lead a little seven year old around in a circle. So I caught on pretty quick. I'm sure you were glad it wasn't today. I mean, if the very first time the kid fell off, it was your fault. You might yeah, have been sued. sued sure, that's that's <laughs> yeah, did come to mind. But uh, that you was must, my first job. You must have been paying on like fifty cents an hour, three hundred dollars for the summer. At most, <laughs> it was the whole summer. And I thought, man, I, this is this is living three hundred bucks. What am I going to do with all that money? Do you remember any lessons learned from it? Uh, even a lot of people when we talk to say, I knew I didn't want to do that job. I wanted to do something else. And it, it made me work harder to do that something well, else. Well, that was, that was it. I mean, the time didn't, my watch never moved. I don't even know if I had a watch. But the time never moved. You know, it was it was the longest day of my, you know, and it only went till three. But it was, it was a long, long day. And I had to bring my own lunch. They didn't even serve you lunch. Uh, so I, I, I knew I, did, I just didn't want to do something that had no challenge to it at all, uh, and that was it. And now, do you feel like your time goes by and you you don't have enough of it? At the road now, I don't have enough of it. That's for sure. Yeah, which is the ideal situation to be in. Yeah, I mean, no, it's you, it, you there's nothing enough boring for. about about uh, the private equity business. No, indeed. And when we come back, more with Alex's interview with John Canning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners. This is our On Leadership series. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's interview with John Kenning, who wanted to become a professional baseball player, of all things, and when that didn't work out, somehow came to lead investment firms. And this is our On Leadership series, and again, this is Our American Stories. Let's talk for a while about what's enabled you to be a philanthropist, private equity. How did you get into it in the first place? I'm sure not many kids grow up thinking, you know, oh, I want to be in private equity. Right. Well, I went to law school, as I mentioned. I got a job at the First National Bank of Chicago in 1969 in their law department, their internal law department. And um, when I got there, the law had just been changed to allow banks to get into some equity investing. So I was a new guy in a big law department, and they said, why don't you learn this? So uh, I then was assigned to do all the work for what was going to be for Chicago Venture Capital, which was run by a, a, a new guy who just came in named Stan Golder, and he turned out, so I I was doing most of the legal work for them from 1969 to 1980. He then left to form Golder Toma Cressy, so I took over for him in 1980. Uh, He recommended me, I took over the venture group. Then we stayed in in the venture group till 92, when we then, with with the support of the bank, spun out and formed Madison Dearborn Partners. Were you nervous when you became the head of the private equity fund, I mean, especially didn't. as a lawyer? I mean, I'm sure you were in on the deals and learned exactly. through that process, but you still That's had to exactly. be nerve-wracking getting in the seat. Well, what I said, you know, I, I remember I almost didn't do it. I, I said, you know, I don't know anything about, I didn't go to business school, I went to law school. I don't know anything about business. And he said, no, do it. This is Stan Golder. You'll, you'll, you know, you've been drafting agreements, you've have been ha- you've been reading financial statements because you have to do that to 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 put covenants and agreements, you know more than you think you know. Of course, that advice is easier said than done. But John Canning did do it and is still doing it. How? I next explored with John how he actually went about leading these firms. What is the process like to get to the point of of making an investment and how strong of a hand do you have in it and and how much of a democracy or a benevolent dictatorship is it? On the deal side, it's a democracy because... um, we all sit in a meeting, and this is this is since 1980. We all sit in a room. We're, we're organized by by industry teams, and the, the there's a democratic process for determining what deals we do and don't do. And, and everybody's got an incentive to make sure the best deals get done because compensation isn't based on uh, number of deals you get done. That's a dangerous incentive. And you're, so when a team is, is proposing a deal and it goes through lots of iterations before it's done because various amounts of information become available as due diligence is done, the rest of the group is, acts as a devil's advocate. And everybody's invests in the fund, has a significant investment in the fu- our fund at the time. So everybody has an incentive to make sure the best deals get done. I've heard you talk about that everything has to be said in that room. There's no talk, right. talking in the hallways. Can you talk about that some more? Well, the, again, this this didn't happen overnight. That this process was uh, successful, and and so you know it, it it took years and years and years. First of all, having every getting you know getting the right team in place, 
having, and I think one of the most important things is mutual trust and mutual respect. So having everybody who actually respects their partners so that 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 you can have ac actually this dialogue without taking it personally. That's very important. But also, we, we've, we have a rule, as you stated, that, that if it's not said in here, it better not be said in the hallway. Because your job is to, if you've got doubts about a deal, your job is to bring them up in here. We'll address them. But if you're going to go out in the hallway and, and, and go in your buddy's office and say, you know, that I, 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 I can't stand that deal, that's not going to fly. You're not going to last here long. No matter how judiciously you hire, you're inevitably going to have some cultural terrorists get through. As Steve Bonner, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, put it to me. And I just love that phrase, cultural terrorists, but it is so true. And so how has John handled this challenge of addressing these cultural terrorists who don't embrace their culture of forthrightness and mutual respect? Let's return to our conversation. Have you had to get rid of some bad apples in the process? We, we've here, here's what yeah yes and and I wouldn't call them bad apples. I'd call them people who were extremely smart and extremely capable, but didn't have our culture, and were, would would therefore undermine the culture. And these are some senior you guys have been here for some time, but uh, we, we've had to we've had to take some of those. Uh, we have had to take some action like that. Uh, um, because the, the toughest guy to get rid of is the guy that's clearly capable and uh, performing and is very smart and uh, you know would be very good at this business in a different environment. What um, what's the greatest thing you do to cultivate that culture? Well, one of the things was we we and we got away from it for a short period of time and we and we uh, we lost a little control over our culture and we had to get rid of some people. And, one is that we had it. We used to have a rule, and we now have it, that everybody of the managing partners, that would be the first 14 guys, and now it's probably 20 people, has to sign off before we hire somebody. As John hinted at there, for a time they let each division hire its own folks, and it didn't work out well. There really is safety in numbers, in a broader group of folks reviewing a potential hire, and many leaders like John have also come to the position that if a team is going to work closely together, the team collectively should have a say about who they're going to be working closely with. And that sure sounds like common sense, but in practice, it is quite uncommon. Another crucial part of cultivating a successful team is cultivating the next generation, the next generation of employees, and hopefully the next generation of managing directors. John's firm, Madison Dearborn, is very intentional about all of this, especially through their associates program, where these young folks are highly involved, working with partners to explore investment opportunities, traveling with them, and even having a direct role in their Monday investment meetings. The topic John and I next explored. One of the things I love is how you guys involve your associates in those Monday meetings. Can you talk about that? And I'm sure that's a great inculcation of, of both the culture and leadership and just learning how the business works. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, the associates sit on the, uh, you know, we have a very long uh, table that holds about 30-some-odd people. And the associates sit kind of in the bleachers. Not only do the associates hear how the deliberation goes and, and, and get all the presentation materials, but they usually, whoever, the way the associates get assigned to teams, 
an associate is always presenting, and it's an ama- it's a yeah, I mean if instead of the managing director who's who's leading on that particular well, the managing deal. director will set up the presentation and will be there, you know, supporting, answering questions, and but the uh, the asso- associates get a real opportunity to present. That would be nerve wracking. It's, it's you know that's a pretty intimidating environment because you got guys, the managing directors average over 20 years here. There's six of them, six of us who've been here since the beginning, 92. You know, these guys are the deal head team. I mean, they're not shy about picking apart an investment thesis. Whew, to be a fly on the wall in that meeting. What an opportunity for these young associates. They're not just learning, but they also have a promising career path before them. And... They're earning a ton of money. Get this. In the private equity industry, the average starting pay is around ninety dollars to $125,000 as an associate. I was telling my father, who's a managing director at a finance firm, about these compensation levels that I was reading about. And boy, it got him going. He went on a tear. Don't worry, it was a well-justified one about the shameless hypocrisy of the folks in the media and in politics who just love to malign this clearly generous financial industry as greedy. You know, you've heard that term thrown around by them before. But when it comes to their very own actions, guess how they treat their own young employees? Miserably. Did you know that the starting salaries in the media and in politics are one-half to one-third of these private equity rates? And if you intern... You often don't get paid at all for your work, which leaves the whole internship experience to mostly wealthy kids who can afford not to get paid. Meanwhile, my father pays $40,000 a year for his college interns, $40,000 for interns who aren't even full time. They are going to school and my father is not unique. This is not about him. This is the financial industry operating in the real world. Now, that's a great untold story in this country, folks, that it's the financial industry who will provide anyone from all economic stripes a step onto the ladder of opportunity while the media and the politicians pull up the ladder for poor kids. Rich kids only apply. And when we come back, more from Alex, more from John Canning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners. After these messages, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is our special on Leadership Series. our American stories and we return to our on leadership series and Alex's interview with John Kenning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners. And before we continue, a couple of observations. Early on in this interview, John talked about the influence of his father and talked about his father's work habits and that he learned from what his father did, not what his father said. And we keep hearing that time and again, you know, in our short segment on Nick Saban, Coach Saban talked about his dad and talked about the work ethic his dad had and the work ethic his dad instilled in him. And over and over again, we learn about the importance of fathers, and not only that they're there, 
but that they teach kids their values and pass them on. The other thing that was fascinating was Alex's short talk on the pay structures of the finance community as opposed to, let's say, the media. And in my experience in the media, it's not only that they pay so poorly uh, young people there, but they treat young people so poorly. They make them fetch stuff, and they're almost little servant classes while the media superstars get paid tens of millions of dollars and then regale and rip apart uh, members of the financial community who earn their wealth and earn their keep. But back to the story, Alex's story, Alex's sit-down with John Canning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners. This is Our American Stories on Leadership. I next asked John about the heavy responsibility of having other people's money in his hands. Do you feel the weight of it, knowing the impact that you can have, positive or negative? I feel the weight of it because I got a big investment in the fund myself. (laughs) That's why I feel the weight of it. And after this healthy laugh, we then took a look at the big picture. Tell us the overall story of private equity. I think when most people obviously hear the term, they think, you know, poorly upon it. And Mitt Romney's, you know, raised it and certainly helped that. And just loading debts on companies and taking away the profits and firing people and taking the management fees. I mean, talk about that. What's what's your response to that? And do you blame the industry for not telling its story enough? You know, in our situation, almost every investment we make, we do pure growth investing and we do buyouts. And almost every investment we make has a has a growth strategy. And so, and the, and the industry is much the same. Uh, you don't you don't create value. If you if you're gonna buy something, just run it and not grow it, and try and sell it again. Is where's where's the where's the you know why is anybody gonna pay more than you bought it for? A favorite example of John's of how they were able to strengthen a company, strengthen the world, and strengthen the finances of their investors is their buying of Sage Products, which is a local company and one that invented six major products for preventing injury and infection in hospitals. Sage's yearly revenue was a strong $300 million, but their products were only in the U.S., even though their products were just as relevant internationally. Madison Dearborn saw an opportunity, and they bought them for $1.5 billion, introduced their products internationally, and increased their sales by $200 million in just two to three years. The medical device company Stryker then bought Sage from them for $2.75 billion. It was a win for everybody, for patients internationally, for the founders and employees of Sage, for Madison Dearborn and their investors that include pensioners like teachers and university endowments, for Stryker, and for the beneficiaries of all of their philanthropy. Take Vince Foglia, the co-founder of Sage. He's given millions to my own alma mater, St. Ignatius, one of the best high schools in Chicago, and it's a very unique elite high school in that it provides over a quarter of its students significant financial assistance, averaging $8,000 a student, providing low-income kids an educational opportunity they otherwise couldn't dream of and creating a truly diverse school community. And for John Canning's part, his philanthropy is also focused on education. And for him, it all started with a specific moment. When a young boy named Eric Morse was thrown off a building, the Ida B. Wells housing project, he was only five years old. The story was uh, he, he wanted, they, they wanted him to steal, but he wouldn't do it. And so the gang members threw him off the building. 
when that happened, my wife said, we ought to find the family because they look like a good family. So she went, she tracked it down through the local pr police department. They said, go to Holy Angels Convent. Those nuns there n know the family. Holy Angels School was r next to the con convent, and the nuns uh, taught at the school. Mm -hmm. So we contacted them, and they said, we'll arrange a visit. So we came down there, it's like in 40, 40th and uh, Martin Luther King Drive, tough area back then because Vita B. Wells was right next to it. It's now gone and it's a, it's actually a gentrifying area. But um, when we arrived, they said, look, w w this family isn't as 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 built. They're, they're, they're not interested in meeting and they've got drugs in the family. It's, it's not a great family, but we have an idea for you. We have seven children that, that uh, can't pay the tuition but want to continue to go to Holy Angels, would you consider supporting? And we said, we'd be glad to. And then we thought that was at the end of it. So a couple of weeks later, we get a call and they say, look, the kids and their parent or guardian want to meet you. They want to have a Valentine's Day party for you. So we went to the convent. We met the seven kids and their grandmother, parents, and, uh, and we then were kind of hooked. One of these original seven scholarship recipients, and one that John was especially close with, was shot and killed on the streets of Chicago. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Since John got hooked, he and his wife have created a program where every year they provide scholarships to 100 disadvantaged children to attend Catholic schools in the city. It's through the Big Shoulders Fund, where he's been the co-chairman since 2004, and has helped raise over $250 million for more scholarships and operational support to keep this effective but under-resourced asset called Catholic Schools alive. 92% of Big Shoulders' scholarship recipients attend college. And contrast this with Chicago public schools who persistently fail their students. Only 40% of them will attend some form of college. And John's involvement in all this is much more surprising than you might expect. Talk about when you started to see Catholic schools as an asset. I mean, you're not Catholic, I believe. Not. So, yeah, talk about, and I think this is an unknown story. I mean, it, both about you and the Wall Street Journal did a fascinating article about New York, about how a bunch of Jewish and atheist philanthropists there as well are big supporters of Catholic schools there. I mean, talk and that's about, the same here, by the way, with some of our biggest donors to Big Shoulders are Jewish. Uh, and and uh, the cardinal Cardinal George used to, you know, I hope jokingly call me the heathen. But uh, you know what? What I learned was, and my wife is Catholic, but and did go to Catholic schools. But when I what I learned when I first got involved with Holy Angels, which was in a really rugged neighborhood, and back then they had twelve hundred students. Uh, now they probably have two hundred because of the changing uh, demographics. But what I learned was. Uh, that this was the safest place, safe, structured, value-based education. It wasn't the religious part of it. And, and you know, no metal detectors. When you go to the hallways, you can hear a pin drop when the classes change. They're wearing uniforms. And, uh, and the alternative was really schools that were not safe, that were not structured. The alternative was really no alternative at all. This is Our American Stories, and we continue in our final segment with our On Leadership series. John Canning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners, 
and our field correspondent and producer, Alex Cortez. This is our On Leadership series, and my goodness, leadership in the workplace, leadership in the community. And to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And if you have a leader in your community, someone who's done extraordinary things in business, in the community, in the social capital side, and we know what that means. That's our churches. That's our organizations. That's our school boards, our city council. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and post us a message, and we'll follow it down. Again, OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Alex's conversation with John Canning, the founder of private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners, and this is our On Leadership segment, and we do these regularly, and these are some of our favorite and most loved segments, our favorite so far still, John Wooden, and we did two hours on Coach Wooden, because what a life, and what a leader, what a coach, and what a husband we learned, and when we left off Alex and John were talking about John's significant support of Catholic schools. And by the way, we learned John wasn't a Catholic, but gave to these schools because they literally save the futures of disadvantaged children and ingrain virtues and values in them that last a lifetime. Let's now continue with their conversation. John then spoke about another advantage that Catholic schools have. They aren't free. <laughs> you heard that right. That's an advantage that they're not free. They cost families a lot, and so it means a lot to them. And this is very important, I think. With parents or support systems that wanted, had to make a sacrifice to send the kid to the school. So you've got somebody who's not watching cable TV, because, and that means that somebody's going to make sure you go to school and you do your homework. And as importantly, he's with other people because they come from the same environment. So it could be just a mother, and a lot. You know, interestingly, in the, in the African American, all almost all my kids are African American or Latino. African American in the inner city, much more mothers and grandmothers. Latinos must mostly dual parents, but sometimes some real abuse going on in the in the in that household. Uh, so you know, they they come from tough tough environments. But there is some support system at home, and that's very important to, to in in uh, in why they're so successful. You guys are doing your best, but long term, are you concerned about just the environment in Illinois in general? Are you swimming against a tide that eventually is going to come too big in terms of you know high taxes, the underfunded pensions, people and businesses fleeing the states? I mean, long term, is this all doomed? And, and why should people you know care about public policy? I, I think. Um, the last, the the last people to leave town will be the kids who are in this, 
in the, in the schools they don't have those options and their parent their parents don't so so that the uh, you know the the bigger concern to me is um, you know the, the conditions these kids ha are, are, are live around around you know the, the schools we're talking about are where all the, the the violence is occurring and you know people say well that's great the kid does, isn't a gang member it's impossible not to be a gang, not necessarily an active gang member, but to have uh, some involvement with a gang because you, you're not going to get to school. You know, that's a, it's almost a, a protective structure. So to, it's naive to say, you know, let's keep all the kids, you know, completely separated from these gangs. It, it just, it's not, if a kid's going to walk home from school, he's got no choice. Uh, that's what that concerns me more than anything. Now I, these kids get into high school, they get out of the neighborhood, they go get jobs. You know, they don't. That, they don't. That doesn't stop them from. They're just pragmatic. Uh, and uh, every every kid in, the, in 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 our schools probably knows somebody has been sh shot. Uh, I've I've been I've been in the classrooms and I, I've asked how many how many people know somebody who's been shot. And I, all the hands go up. You know, so that's living in that environment. I've, out, out where I live, if you ask that question, nobody raised their hand. And, uh, you know, it's hard to relate to that. It is. And it's hard to learn when these kids have so much noise going on in the background. But these Catholic schools are doing it. John pointed out that there are about 25,000 students attending Catholic schools in Chicago, about 450,000 attending traditional public schools, and about 40,000 attending charter schools. And he's concluded that Catholic schools could take on another 25,000 students, but that's it. They can't be the sole solution. Broader reform of public schools has to happen. In closing out this conversation for our On Leadership series, we spoke about a couple lighter subjects, such as John almost buying the Chicago Cubs. What I found fascinating about that is some of your quotes talk about how, in hindsight, you wouldn't have liked it all the limelight. Yeah, um, and all the attention. I think you told the story of you know going to your country club and people treating you better. Well, can you, can you talk about that a little? Yeah, bit? Yeah, well, I mean, so when I put together a syndicate, we had a great ownership group: Andy McKenna, uh, Pat Ryan, Michael Sachs, Michael Farrow. We had a lot of a couple of my partners here. We had a, we had a lot of people that were you know well known that weren't doing it for for to make a return, but were really doing it. Because it was, it's a you know, it's a city institution, and you know the the Cubs are the Cubs, and that'd be real. so. We uh, so when I, when it became public that I was leading the syndicate, you know, got in all the newspapers and whatnot. And I'd been a member of my country club for 15 years, and, and I probably knew six people. You know, I don't play in any of the golf tournaments. I I, I go up there quite a bit for 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 dinner. And I go play golf with my kids and my wife, but I never got involved in any of this stuff. And then all of a sudden, I, I see people. I mean, I'd be at dinner and people. I could see people, you know, pointing and, and whispering to something. And all of a sudden, people I didn't even know were asking me to play golf, which I hate to do with with people that are you know, any good at the sport. So I, I, you know, I, I I could tell what was going on. You know, it was it was. Uh, you know, it was just because I was the guy making the bid for the Cubs. If they only knew John was such a great guy, as I found out in our time together, 
Maybe they would have asked him to play golf sooner. Or maybe not. Fame is one weird animal. And although John didn't get the Cubs, he does own an interest in six minor league baseball teams and 12% of the Milwaukee Brewers. And on the topic of baseball ownership, John shared something fascinating with me in case you ever find yourself in a position to buy a portion of a professional team. One can only dare to dream, but hey, it happened to John, a kid who started out by handling horses at a Jewish summer camp. Anyways, he told me that if the entirety of the Milwaukee Brewers were sold to another owner, he'd receive about $90 million in return for his 12% interest. But if you only bought a minority interest such as his, it would only cost about $45 million. So there's a significant discount into buying into minority interests of teams that could one day double your money if the entirety of the team's ownership is sold. So just file that away in the back of your mind. And now, my final question for baseball owner, philanthropist, and investor, John Canning. What about you, John, would people be surprised about? It could be a quirk, a passion, or a hobby. Uh... <laughs> you know, I, I think, well, it depends on where, where you go. I think uh, if there were people that graduated from me with college, they'd be surprised that I'm, that I'm here, you know, doing this well. And same with law school, because I was not much of a student at law school. So that would be, uh, that was kind of a joke when I made a contribution to law school. I named the place, placement a- office after me. Well, I, ha- I had the hardest time getting a job, so a couple of the people that were my peers got the joke and, and <laughs> called me up to, to tell me they got the joke. But, um, you know, I think um, probably people that didn't know me that didn't weren't close to me would be surprised that, you know, I, I've lived in the same house for, you know, since 1984. Wow. And it's, you know, it's not a spectacular house. My kids all have nicer houses. You know, the only thing that I do really lavishly is I, I fly privately. Uh, but outside of that, I'm, you know, pretty modest. Why do you do that? Why haven't you, why haven't you bought a nicer house? You know, I, I don't need it. You know, I just don't need it. It's a big house, but it's it's nothing special. I mean, it's in, and it's got not two acres, but it's, it's the same old house I've had. And I, I just, I don't need it. Do you realize it doesn't make you happy? Or no, your exactly. You're right. Yeah, I mean, I, pr- flying privately makes me happy. <laughs> that, that's for sure. And I have a nice car, too. But outside of that, not much. And there you go. Great job on that, Alex. And that last part tells you a lot about John, doesn't it? I mean, he's living in the same house. Well, since almost about the time he was starting to make real money. He joked that his kids all had nicer houses than he does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good for him. And what did you learn from John? What did you expect going in? And what did you what did you learn coming out, Alex? I mean, you expect to be intimidated by these private equity guys. I mean, these guys are titans. But you know, after my spending that week in Chicago interviewing a lot of these these big titans and civic leaders, what I really walk away from is they're really just gentlemen. You know, and I wish I was the gentleman that they were. You know, and it's a great example for me to be able to see this. You know, how gracious they are with their time and and how loving. And you can just hear it in their voice too, how much they genuinely care about you know, you and other people. And I just think it's not what people would expect, you know, when they think about the finance industry. Well, and that's what we learn a lot. And especially the team building, the fact that he lets his employees, all of them hire each other is not only remarkable. 
I actually think it's common sense. I have the same theory here, and I've been taught by some pretty smart guys. Let your team make these decisions, because in the end, they're responsible for the organization. Thanks so much for this report, Alex. And as always, our On Leadership series is just... It's just always dazzling to find out where folks come from, what they do, how they do it. And humility seems to be a part of all of it. And the people. These people really rely on their people. We we learn that from the master, from John Wooden himself, that it's about the people. And bringing the best out of them. They're bringing the best out of them and leading by example. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to see and listen to all that we do on leadership John Kenning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners, and what an impact he's having on the people in his community in the great city of Chicago. stories and we love to tell stories about everything including our country and we brought you an hour on benjamin franklin thanks to walter isaacson an hour on alexander hamilton thanks to ron chernow the wright brothers thanks to david mccullough and you're going to hear it from some of the best minds the straightest minds the american story enough people don't know about it american history isn't taught anymore in too many of our schools it's a tragedy but there are great resources for you now thanks to digital technology And so if you can't find it in the schools, you can find it on your computers. And joining us now is Jeffrey Rosen, and he's a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School, but he is also the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, a contributing editor of The Atlantic, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. He's a busy guy, and thanks for carving out some time to talk to us, Jeffrey. Wonderful to be here. You bet. And Jeffrey, before we start, I always like to start all of what we do here on the show. And is what did what did you think about when you were young that brought you to where you are now? A little bit about your mother and father, the circumstances of your birth, where you grew up, and how you got where you are right now. Wow. Well, I grew up in New York City, and I uh, went to um, all sorts of great schools, Harvard, Oxford, Yale, you know, sounds so fancy, but I was so lucky because they just kindled in me this great intellectual excitement. And I discovered in law school that my passion was the Constitution, and in particular, bringing people of different perspectives together to discuss the Constitution. So as you said, I just have had a great run as a law professor teaching constitutional law at GW Law School, as a legal journalist for all these great publications, writing about the Supreme Court. But about three years ago, I got the dream job of my life when I was uh, uh, asked to be the head of this beautiful institution, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. And this is a place that was created by Congress during the bicentennial of the Constitution with an inspiring mission to engage in nonpartisan constitutional education and debate. And this is the mission of my life, is, is in these polarized times, bringing together people of different perspectives, just as you're doing on this great show to discuss this great document of human freedom, which binds us. So I've been here for three years. I uh, have been so privileged to be part of a great team that has built up this spectacular 
online digital education platform. You mentioned the fact that now we can find so much education online, and I've got to just start by pitching to your listeners the incredible interactive constitution that the Constitution Center launched a year ago. It's gotten 9 million hits since it launched. Uh, Listeners can find it in the App Store at Interactive Constitution or online at constitutioncenter.org and co-sponsored by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, the leading liberal and conservative lawyers groups in America, this amazing online research allows you to click on any part of the Constitution, say the Second Amendment or the Foreign Emoluments Clause or all the stuff that's in the news, and see the top liberal and conservative scholars with a thousand words about what they agree the clause means, and then separate statements about what they disagree. And it's just thrilling to see how much agreement there, there really is, but also the areas of disagreement. And that model of bringing liberals and conservatives together to talk about the Constitution on every media platform around the country, in Philadelphia, on videos, on our We the People podcast every week, are what we're doing here at the center. It's hugely meaningful and important in these polarized times, and I am just so privileged to be doing it. And that's constitutioncenter.org. But if you have a family trip in store in the next months, spring break, go to Philadelphia and visit this great institution and visit Assembly Hall. Go to see the Liberty Bell. Um, go to see where these remarkable men in the 18th century did something so dazzling and unique that other countries around the world have just been trying to copy us since. And many are succeeding. And my goodness, Jeffrey, as you know, so many still aren't. But let's talk about this Constitution. And let's talk about, you know, most, most people, what they do know about the Constitution is the Bill of Rights. But what they don't know is Article 1, 2, and 3 particularly. Talk about those three articles before we dig into your really superb Wall Street Journal piece on Article 2. But let's talk about the three branches of government and, and give people a little background as to how that happened and why. Yes, it's hugely important to start with the structural constitution, uh, both because there's a real knowledge deficit here. Uh, a recent Annenberg survey suggests that only a third of Americans can name all three branches of government. Uh, a third can't name a single one. But also because, as you said, the, the, the Bill of Rights wasn't what the framers were thinking about when they gathered in Independence Hall across from the Constitution Center in, in, in 1787. They were trying to create a structural constitution that would create a government energetic enough to attend to common purposes, like being able to wage war and and raise revenue, but constrained enough so that it wouldn't threaten liberty the way the king had. So they created a Congress with with enumerated powers. Uh, They created a presidency in Article II with with also limited powers and a judiciary. Interestingly, the framers thought that Congress, the legislature, would be the most dangerous branch because it had uh, the most powers. Uh, the presidency was supposed to be quite limited. Uh, he had a few uh, powers, like the ability to uh, veto laws, to take care that the laws were faithfully executed, to nominate uh, ambassadors and judges, to be commander-in-chief of the armed forces. But Congress had control over the purse. It had the power to declare war. It could deny appropriations uh, to anything that it wanted to thwart the president on. And, 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 and therefore, uh, when it came to tyranny, it really was legislative tyranny that the framers were concerned about. That changed over the centuries, and we can talk about that evolution if you like, but it's, it's good just to begin by looking at the Constitution, see the nine articles of Article One, which with all these different powers uh, assigned to Congress, and only uh, four separate sections for the president, um, it's a much more constrained office. You bet, and it's so important to know what problems the founders were trying to solve, because in the end, the Constitution was a document in which people were trying to solve problems, 
that that had never been, I think, Jeffrey, ever solved before in this way. We're going to come back in just a minute. We're going to dig into Article 2. We're also going to talk a little bit about why the Bill of Rights existed. Uh, People think this is a democracy, but in the end, it's really anti-democratic and illiberal in very very important ways because the majority cannot take away our right to free speech. The majority cannot take away those fundamental rights. They're God-given, the, the, the founders thought, and not government-granted. So an interesting and a lot of dynamic tensions in this beautiful document. No better person to talk to about it. Jeffrey Rosen, more after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. And you can go to constitutioncenter.org. And my goodness, their interactive constitution, it's, it's simply the best teaching tool on the Constitution ever assembled. And it's straight up the middle. You get the best from the right, the best from the left, and you even got to find out what they, agree, what they agree on. Jeffrey, what was fascinating to me when I went to UVA Law School was that America, for the most part, and this happens across almost every subject, we get to see what the judges disagree on, but we never find out what they agree on. And there are lots of decisions that are 9-0, 9-0, and those never, never get reported, Jeffrey. You're absolutely right, and that's the majority of decisions. Something like 80% of the decisions are unanimous. You know, a small percentage are five to four, and it's important, especially because this is such a polarized time, to remember how much the justices agree on and how much scholars agree on. And it really was thrilling to commission the top liberal and conservative scholars. Their homework was to write about all 80 clauses of the Constitution and to see how quickly they were able to come to consensus about what the settled law in history was on the most contested clauses of our time, including the, the Second Amendment and the Foreign Emoluments Clause. So really, although uh, much divides us, we have important uh, ideas and ideals that unite us, and those are embodied in the beautiful U.S. Constitution. No doubt about it. Let's talk a little bit about the problems we were trying to solve as it relates to the Articles of Confederation. Uh, talk about that, and then also talk about this state tug, because the states were worried about power, too, and they were going to give up or yield too much to a central government, and they were worried, my goodness, we've just gotten away from this king. We're worried about our sovereignty. So the states were worried about sovereignty, but yet we were worried about financing a military and being able to transact commerce between state lines. I mean, everybody had their own currency. What a mess. So talk about the problems these guys were all trying to solve in that room in Philadelphia. Well, you put it very well. They were concerned about uh, funding the Confederate war debts, about raising money to achieve 
uh, common uh, purposes, including the common defense. They were concerned about debtors' rebellions, Shay's rebellion. They feared that the property classes were being assaulted by these mobs uh, and that the government was powerless to respond. And therefore, they wanted to create a federal government energetic enough to act, unlike the Articles of Confederation, where you needed unanimous consent of all the uh, sovereign states to do anything, which, which made common action possible, and yet constrained enough not to threaten individual liberty and also to maintain some degree of state autonomy. Uh, there were many really important philosophical questions. One was, who should be sovereign? the people of the United States or the people of each individual state. And James Wilson from Pennsylvania insisted the people of the United States were sovereign and therefore secession from the Union once it was created would be unconstitutional. Lincoln relied on those arguments. By contrast, others insisted individual states were sovereign and could uh, secede. And the other place that this debate about the scope of federal and state power came up was about whether or not to have a Bill of Rights. And James Madison initially said, we don't need a Bill of Rights because it's unnecessary or dangerous. Unnecessary because the Constitution itself is a Bill of Rights, because Congress has constrained powers. It has no authority to abridge freedom of speech or other retained natural rights that, as you so well put it, the framers believed came from God or nature and not from government. And Madison also thought a Bill of Rights would be dangerous because if you wrote down certain rights, people might wrongly assume that if a right wasn't written down, it wasn't protected. And because of these natural rights... Uh, were not created by government, it would be wrong to assume that they could be uh, enumerated on a short list. Um, but anti-federalists like uh, George Mason of Virginia, who wrote the Great Virginia Declaration of Rights, and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, I've now le- learned to pronounce it gerrymandering rather than gerrymandering, if you want <laughs> yeah. to be pedantic, um, they said they refused to sign the Constitution because it had no Bill of Rights. We have this incredible space at the Constitution Center called Signers Hall with life-size statues of all the framers, and in the back of the room are the three anti-federalists, Gary Mason and, and, and Randolph of Virginia, who didn't sign the Constitution because it had no Bill of Rights. So in the face of this opposition, James Madison changed his mind, and he was a pragmatic politician. He favored compromise, and he listened to the cry of those states who, 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 who said when they ratified that they, they wanted a Bill of Rights. And then Madison cut and pasted among the Bill of Rights uh, that existed in the revolutionary-era state constitutions. And as if the interactive Constitution debates between the scholars isn't enough, there's more. I feel like a Ginsu Nice sale at this point. <laughs> you can also, on this incredible app, click on any part of the Bill of Rights and see its antecedents in the revolutionary-era state constitutions. So you can see how Madison drew on George Mason's First Amendment free speech protections or religious liberty provisions when he drafted the language of our First Amendment. And Madison drafted the Bill of Rights. It originally had not 10 amendments, but 12. Uh, George Washington sent out uh, 12 amendments for ratification. At the Constitution Center, you can see one of the 12 original copies of the Bill of Rights, which has 12 amendments. The first two were not ratified. Uh, So our First Amendment was their third and free speech, it wasn't at the top of their list. Their First Amendment actually said there should be one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. If that had passed, there'd be something like 4,000 Congress people today, so it's <laughs> right. good that it didn't. But it was just a coincidence that the free speech amendment passed first, and that resulted in the beautiful Bill of Rights that we have today. Yep. And let's talk about one last thing, and then the final segment we'll dig into your piece on executive power and a history of executive power as we go to Donald Trump and we're looking at Barack Obama and Bush, you take us way back. And I, I love what you did there, providing a context 
for people to uh, understand what's happening and interpret it in the press. But I want to talk about property rights. We were just doing, we spent some time with Walter Isaacson. And what was remarkable about the founders, they understood that there was physical property and the Constitution protected property. But this idea of intellectual property and the patent, this is a stunning, uh, thoughtful way of thinking about the world in the 18th century, Jeffrey. It really is. And what's so striking is how much Jeffersonian thought influenced the copyright clause. Jefferson is incredibly opposed to monopolies of any kind. He believes that they're engines of tyranny that threaten farmers and the producing classes. But he makes an exception for limited monopolies for intellectual property because it's helpful to uh, encourage creative processes. And that's why uh, copyrights are authorized for limited periods, um, just enough to give people incentives to write and create, but not so much that they can uh, prevent the dissemination and sharing of ideas. Jefferson has this beautiful metaphor about someone who lights a candle from my taper, you know, doesn't diminish mine, but increases the flame for for all. It's more eloquent. But um, that's why the framers had the copyright clause. It's an exception to the general anti-monopoly rule. And Jefferson actually introduces a failed constitutional amendment that would have banned Congress from setting up any other monopolies or corporations with exclusive privileges, that fails. But that anti-monopoly tradition runs throughout American history from Jefferson to Jackson to my hero, Louis Brandeis, uh, who I've just written a new book about, to Woodrow Wilson, to uh, FDR. And we're hearing some of it today on both the left and the right. You know, we did an hour on on Jerry Wexler, the uh, producer at Atlantic Records and one of the co-founders. And we also spent about eight of those minutes on the story of a song, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, which Carole King wrote. Mm -hmm. But Jerry Wexler had the audacity and the intellect to know that Aretha Franklin needs to be covering that song, that Carol King may not be the best singer. And he, t- he noted briefly that the genius of this thing called the property right of a song, and that this is what makes the arts community so rich in this country, that we can transact business around and enter into the free markets and private enterprise with this ownership and the Carol King derived tremendous royalties from Aretha Franklin's performance of that song. And Aretha launched her career and got her royalties or performance royalties thanks to that song. And so that foresight back then led to the music we listen to today, Jeffrey. Phenomenal. Absolutely beautiful. and such a great example. You bet. When we come back, we'll get to the, the article that prompted this conversation. And that is Jeffrey's beautiful piece in the Wall Street Journal, which, as always, is nonpartisan and just takes us down a walk down the road of executive power and the struggles about power between the branches of government. And again, we're talking about Article 1, which is the legislative branch, Article 2, the executive branch, and Article 3, the judiciary. And when we come back, we'll get to that with Jeffrey Rosen. And by the way, again, it's, the con- it's constitutioncenter.org constitutioncenter.org and folks this is a seminal family trip you know washington dc and philly are very close so if you were to go to dc for two or three days get on that amtrak train get up to philadelphia take two more days or heck just go to philly because i think they got better food this is lee habib this is our american stories more with jeffrey rosen after these messages
is Our American Stories, and joining us, Jeffrey Rosen. And we've been talking about his article, and now we're about to dig into it from the Wall Street Journal. And this was from a couple of weeks back, but we don't do the news here, folks, as you know. It's storytelling, and every once in a while, we just talk to really smart people. And Jeffrey's one of the smartest, but he's not just smart, he's fair. And we like to do that, too. There's no screaming, there's no yelling here. Uh, There's a lot of other places you can get that, folks. And I know that's why you're tuning in. And Jeffrey, the title was The Overinflated Presidency, and the subtitle was Donald Trump Will Inherit an Executive Branch Whose Powers Have Ballooned Far Beyond Their Constitutional Bounds. And I love the way you provide historical context for this. What led you to this piece, and where do we start? Well, the editors of the Wall Street Journal asked me to write a piece about the history of executive power and how it's evolved over time. A wonderful assignment, and... Uh, as it happened, I am in the middle of writing a biography of an underappreciated but very constitutionally minded president, William Howard Taft. So I jumped at the chance to start with the debate between Taft and Roosevelt in 1912 about the powers of the presidency, which really encapsulates, for me, the point at which the framers' vision of a constrained president who is far less dangerous than the legislature morphed into our modern version of the imperial presidency. And just very briefly, you have the two positions uh, encapsulated between Taft and Roosevelt, the two former allies who became uh, rivals in 1912. Taft takes the traditional position, which had been embraced by 19th century presidents, that the president can only do what the Constitution explicitly allows. So that vision was embodied by people like uh, Abraham Lincoln, who as a congressman, a Whig congressman, Um, in the 1850s, demanded that President James Knox Polk identify the precise spot that Mexican troops were said to have shed blood on U.S. soil because Lincoln thought, without proving that, uh, Polk had no authority to dispatch troops in the Mexican War on his own. And for that, Lincoln became known as Spotty Lincoln. That's how legalistic he was. (laughs) But uh, Theodore Roosevelt, in 1912, kind of goes off the populist deep end and insists that the president can do anything that the Constitution doesn't explicitly forbid. It's the opposite of the task-constrained vision. Uh, Roosevelt calls it the stewardship theory. He delivers this famous uh, New Nationalism speech in Kansas in 1910, where he says the New Nationalism regards the executive power as the steward of the public welfare, and later he says the executive officer is a steward of the people. So... um, This Rooseveltian vision basically triumphs over the Taft vision. And although a few uh, presidents like uh, Coolidge uh, took the constrained view, every president, Republican, Democratic, since Franklin Roosevelt, has taken Theodore Roosevelt's uh, stewardship view that the president can do anything the Constitution doesn't explicitly allow. And both liberals and conservatives acquiesced in this vast expansion of executive power, in ways that led critics of both George W. Bush and Barack Obama to accuse both of those presidents of having created uh, an imperial presidency, to use Arthur Schlesinger's uh, phrase from the 1960s, and to enact by executive order policies that Congress had refused to enact by statute. So both Bush and Obama are criticized for asking Congress for action, like immigration uh, reform in Obama's case, or uh, uh, NSA, uh, terrorism-related actions in Bush's case, Congress refuses, and the president does it anyway by executive order. Now, all of a sudden, progressives are joining conservatives and libertarians in fearing for the excesses of the unconstrained presidency. There's a renewed 
interest in Madisonian limits on executive power. So perhaps uh, William Howard Taft will have his day at last. Well, what I always found interesting is when Bush was telling Congress to hurry up or he'd have to act without them, the Democrats went crazy. And then when Obama said, look, if you don't get to this Congress, you pesky uh, legislative branch, I'll do something about it. The conservatives went crazy. And, of course, the American people didn't like any of it because that's their choice through the people's branch. It's really true. Both sides uh, have uh, been opportunistic in this regard. And there's a sort of bipartisan moment here where uh, liberal conservative and libertarian critics of our new president, President Trump, are concerned that the, the presidency has become too populist. They, they, they worry about the president communing directly with the people through tweets in a way that the framers certainly would not have anticipated. James Madison said explicitly the last thing that elected representatives in Congress and the presidency are supposed to do is communicate directly with the people. They had, as you said in your great intro, a filtered view of democracy, where rather than direct populist influence, the elected officials are supposed to uh, represent the people through their own wisdom uh, uh, rather than through direct instructions. So uh, there is a, a renewed interest in, in Madisonian constraints, and we'll see, uh, we'll see where they go. We will. And, and one other thing, and, and it's not on the subject of the, of the piece that you wrote, but I've, I've always wondered about the administrative state. That is what I call the soft state. And that is, you know, the, the EPA, the FDA, and it, it, the authority that Congress is in some ways just tossed over to them for who knows what reasons, in the same way that often Congress will punt to the Supreme Court. I mean, sometimes it's not that the court wants these authorities. It's that the legislative branch doesn't, doesn't want to face the heat on a tough decision. Talk about how the branches sometimes use each other. Jeffrey, and, and, and kick the can down the road or punt on things, thus giving another branch possibly more power than it was ever designed to have. There's no question about it. That's very well put. We had a superb discussion about the constitutionality of the administrative state here at the Constitution Center a few weeks ago, co-sponsored by the Federal Judicial Center, which is the continuing education group for federal judges, and a wonderful bipartisan group of appellate and district court federal judges came to the center. We had two public programs, which listeners can find online at constitutioncenter.org. But the basic question was, is the administrative state unconstitutional? And that was a question that was last live during the New Deal period when the Supreme Court struck down the centerpiece of Franklin Roosevelt's uh, National Industrial Recovery Act uh, unanimously on the grounds that it centralized power and violated the doctrines that said that the president that said that Congress cannot uh, delegate away its legislative lawmaking authority to the presidency. But ever since the New Deal and ever since the Supreme Court switched its position in 1937 and began to uphold the administrative state, uh, it's been mostly academics who've really been challenging its constitutionality. The current, the, the current Supreme Court, if the balance maintains the same as it was uh, under the late Justice Scalia, may not have the appetite to really dig into this question uh, uh, wholeheartedly, but if President Trump were to get another Supreme Court seat, we could see serious questions on the part of the Supreme Court about whether Congress has delegated too much of its lawmaking authority to the presidency and whether agencies from the EPA to the Federal Reserve to the Federal Communications Commission might in fact be unconstitutional. Well, I think what was stunning to so many of us when we got to law school and we studied the administrative state was that in the end there was almost taxing power in these agencies in the end because they were able through their regulations to increase costs and yet the people didn't get to speak on behalf and on, on, on their own behalf 
And, and the taxing power resides in Article 1. Moreover, you don't get the same due process when you're in front of an administrative judge in the IRS that you do in the criminal courts. In the criminal courts, you're, you have the presumption of innocence. With the IRS, you're sort of presumed guilty. I mean, there are appeals, but I don't know how many Americans listening right now have heard from their accountant, look, yeah, you may be right here, but I think you should just pay because, you know, just get it over with. And so that feeling of American citizens not being able to respond to this large apparatus far away from them, I think is something that I think libertarians share with some conservatives and some progressives. I think it's just a fascinating union of, of, of allies and interests in some of these discussions. It really is. And lower, lower courts are beginning to revive these questions. There was a fascinating decision recently holding that administrative law judges of the Securities and Exchange Commissions may violate due process and lacking all of the procedural protections of the Bill of Rights may be unconstitutional. So I think we're seeing, as you said, renewed interest in reexamining these first principles and the debate that results will be absolutely fascinating. Jeffrey Rosen and, of course, the National Constitution Center. It's a must-see. And get to constitutioncenter.org if you can't get to Philly. Jeffrey, we'd love to have you on a lot more, and we'd love to take some of your content and share it with our audience. But thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for all you're doing to educate Americans. It was a real pleasure. I look forward to the next time. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of our Constitution. There is no greater story. That's why people are running to see Hamilton. There's stuff there they didn't know. And the people behind the story, even more interesting. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will get to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, better known as Lewis and Clark, returned eastward after a 4,600-mile-long journey from St. Louis to the Pacific Ocean. William Clark was invited to join the expedition called the Corps of Discovery by Meriwether Lewis, who in turn was invited by President Thomas Jefferson to take it. To Meriwether Lewis, Jefferson was more than his president, he was more like his father figure. Lewis's dad died when he was six, and Jefferson treated the boy as the son he never had. By commissioning Lewis on an awesome adventure of the vast unknown territories of the United States purchased under the Louisiana deal that Thomas Jefferson penned, but Jefferson was putting the very life of his adopted son at risk. But Jefferson knew it was a necessary mission and that Lewis was the man for the job. But on this day in history in 1806, the beginning of their return trip eastward, Lewis wasn't sure Mr. Jefferson was right. To Meriwether Lewis, they had already failed on their mission. They did not find a contiguous water route to the Pacific, one of the central reasons for this pilgrimage. And if they did not return home, all of their maps, journals, all that they had learned would be lost forever. Let's go to Alex Cortez, our field correspondent, to bring us this great report. At this point, President Thomas Jefferson was also becoming apprehensive about how things would turn out, how the journey was going, if it was still going, 
if they were alive. Here's Stephen Ambrose, who wrote the definitive book about the journey on Daunting Courage. It was a national enterprise comparable to the astronauts of our own time. And there was intense national concern over the fate of the expedition. And people were beginning to worry. Jefferson, he hadn't heard from him since they left Mandan in April of 1805. He'd had no contact with him whatsoever. So all he could do was worry. They weren't doing well, but they were alive. After reaching the Pacific Ocean, they spent the entire winter there, 106 days to be precise, so that the season's trying conditions would pass before their journey home. And they were all too aware of this number of days. Rained every day. Sometimes just a light drizzle, but a constant rain. They were always wet. They had built this small fort for themselves. They had a smokehouse where it was very difficult to keep fires going because the wood was wet all the time. And they had nothing but elk to eat. Elk for breakfast, elk at noon, elk in the evening. They counted that there were only 12 days, 12 out of 106, that it did not rain. And in addition to making life miserable, the rain made their clothes rot. To boot, the supplies they needed for survival, now and for the long journey home, were in question, according to Stephen Ambrose. That is, at least most of their supplies. Eventually they ran out of damn near everything. What they never ran out of was lead and powder and their rifles were always in good shape. These were frontiersmen. Give me lead, give me powder, and give me a good rifle, and I can get through anything. One other thing they never ran out of, paper and ink. These were Meriwether Lewis's and William Clark's tools. Paper, ink, powder, and rifle. With that, they conquered a continent. Tools that Jefferson insisted they used to document everything. And yet it was a command that Meriwether Lewis frequently flouted running up over 400 days of the expedition that he did in journal. But perhaps for a reason that you might not expect. Jefferson spoke to the melancholy streak that ran in the family. And he certainly was a man who could fall into a deep depression. And yet he had a willpower and an energy sufficient to overcome those depressions so that in the expedition itself, the only indication we have of depression is when he doesn't write in his journal. But there's no indication at all that it ever affected his actions. And for a manic depressive, which he pretty clearly was, that takes a tremendous willpower to overcome that depression and continue to act. The rest of the Corps of Discovery did their fair share of journaling. And here's a sample of their entries from that winter at Fort Clatsop. Entries that reflect why they moved up their departure date from the planned April 1st to March 23rd. January 20th. Wet and rainy weather during the whole of this day. Nothing material occurred worth mentioning. Joseph Whitehouse. March 3rd, everything moves on in the old way. I'm 
we are counting the days which bind us to Fort Clatsop. March 7th. Among our other difficulties, we now experience the want of tobacco. We use crabtree bark as a substitute. Patrick Gass. Departure day arrives, and it's a day that Meriwether Lewis made sure to document. The wind is pretty high, but it seems to be the common opinion that we could pass Point William. We accordingly distributed the baggage and directed the canoes to be launched and loaded before our departure. At 1 p.m., we bid a final adieu to Fort Clatsop. At a quarter before three, we had passed Meriwether's Bay and commenced coasting the difficult shore. The wind was not very hard. And here's the journal entry of his loyal partner, William Clark. This morning proved so rainy and uncertain that we were undetermined for some time whether we had best set out and risk the river, which appeared to be rising, or not. John Coulter, a member of their expedition, returned having killed an elk about three miles towards Point Adams. The rain ceased, and it became fair about Meridian, at which time we loaded our canoes and at 1 p.m. left Fort Clatsop on our homeward-bound journey. At this place we had wintered and remained from the 7th of December, 1805, to this day, and have lived as well as we had any right to expect, and we can say that we were never one day without three meals of some kind a day, either poor elk meat or roots, notwithstanding the repeated fall of rain, which has fallen almost constantly. Since we passed the long narrows on the November last, Indeed, we have had only a few days of fair weather since that time. Soon after we had set out from Fort Clatsop, we were met by Delashelwit and eight men of the Chinooks, and Delashelwit's wife. They had a canoe, a sea otter skin, dried fish, and hats for sale. We purchased the sea otter skin and proceeded on through Meriwether's Bay. There was a stiff breeze from the southwest, which raised considerable swells around Meriwether's Point which was as much as our canoes could ride. Above Point William, we came to at the camp of Druyer and the Twofields, the last names of companions on their journey. They had killed two elk, which was about one and a half miles distant. Here we encamped for the night, having made 16 miles. All that winter long, they had hoped for a trading vessel to show up so that they could replenish their supplies, and more importantly, so they could send back a copy of their journals as insurance that their accomplishments would reach President Jefferson and the nation, even if they did not. But during these months on the coast, no one ever showed up. And so it meant that they had to show up back east, back home in the human flesh. Would they make it? The story continues here on this program. But they've made it this far, this band of brothers. Teamwork. This was a family that had come together and formed a team for the exploration of the continent of North America. And they couldn't have done it if they hadn't become a family. Every one of them could recognize a cough in the night and know who it was. They could hear a footstep and know who it was. They knew who liked salt on their meat and who didn't. They knew 
Who was the best shot in the expedition? Who was the fastest runner? Who was the man who could get a fire going the quickest on a rainy day? They knew because they sat around the campfire about each other's parents and loved ones, each other's hopes, and they had come to love each other to the point that they would sell their own lives gladly to save a comrade. They had developed a bond, they had become a band of brothers, and together they were able to accomplish feats that we just stand astonished at today when we look at them. And great job on that, Alex, and what a story. And Alex and I both graduated from the University of Virginia. Alex, an undergraduate degree there, and me at law school, and we know this story well. It's a part of the fabric of Central Virginia, the story of Jefferson, and in the end, this story of Meriwether Lewis and, of course, Clark. Lewis and Clark, the return home this day in history, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. 17 terrific online courses available for free. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. This is Our American Stories, the Lewis and Clark story. Return home eastward. <laughs>